Well, we have been working our way through this book of Colossians. It's a small book, only four chapters, but there's so much in this book. And one of the things that we've mentioned as Paul writes this letter to this church in Colossae, Paul had never actually come to this church, but he was in a town of Ephesus, which was about 100 miles away. And so uh, two people come to Ephesus and uh, they become believers. They then go down to Colossae and they begin the church. So when Paul writes this letter, the church is about five years old at this point, but Paul is no longer in Ephesus. Ephesus, He's now in Rome and uh, he's writing as a prisoner in a Roman prison there in, in Rome. So over the past three weeks as we've traveled through, we've looked at certain things. I'm gonna just put a few verses on uh, the screen. The first thing that we highlighted the first week on the screen. There it is. Uh, Paul writes to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Christ, who are at Colossae. One of the things that we said was that this letter is being written to faithful believers. They're not struggling with immorality and faithfulness. The struggle that's in this church is that there are those who are coming into the church and they are teaching strange things. And so Paul then goes on beyond that. He says the first thing that he wants to do is he wants to clarify some things about what we do and why we do. But the first thing that he needed to clarify is who is Jesus. And so later on in chapter one, Paul said this. Uh, He says he's the image of the invisible God. Uh, The word image can be translated as manifestation. He's the manifestation of the invisible God. For God was well pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is fully God. And uh, then it told us, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. He's the creator. So Paul drives home the point in every way that that he can possibly say that Jesus is not just a teacher, a prophet, but he is God, God in the flesh. And uh, then last week, if he's God in the flesh, Paul went a step further to talk about everything that Jesus has done for us. And so in chapter 2, it began by saying, and in him you have been made complete. And then he goes on, he says, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. And uh, you notice it's always a, a done deal in the past tense. And it says he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, having nailed it to the cross. So he's forgiven us everything uh, that we've ever done, everything we've ever done, everything we might be doing now, and everything that we would ever do in the future. And so we talked about that. So that brought us up to chapter 2, verse 16. And so if all of that's true, Jesus is God, here's what he's done for us, he's forgiven us, and uh, he's uh, made us complete. In verse 16 it says, therefore. Most of your Bibles have the word therefore. Some of your Bibles have the word so, but the idea is based upon all of that, this is what you need to know. And uh, before I go any further, I I, want to say a couple of things. We're going to talk about some things that that Paul's going to illustrate. We're going to talk about how they understood it then and uh, how we might apply that today in our world. Once again, as I've said every week, there's so much more in this than we could adequately cover, so I'm going to skim over, uh, just kind of skim through it as we go. I realize that some of this might create more questions than answers, but I hope to give you enough to get a handle on what's going on. Some of the things that we're going to talk about are very hotly debated within the church world. And my commitment to you, my promise to you, is that today there will be something here to offend everyone. So uh, there's going to be part of this where you're going to be laughing at somebody else, like, oh, those idiots, and then we're going to talk about it, and you're going, oh, wait a minute. So anyway, so uh, we'll see how you do. If you go running and screaming out of the uh, auditorium, then then, uh, we know. So verse 16, he says, therefore, based upon all of that, everything I've said, 
No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. The things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now you want to underline all of verse 19. He says, and not holding fast to the head. That's not holding fast to Jesus. From whom the entire body, that's the church, being supplied, held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that which is from God, which is from God. So as Paul gets into this, the, the first thing that he's going to talk about is, uh, is legalism. And so the first point that he's making, you don't have to write this down, but Paul is going to say never bow to legalism, never bow to legalism. Now legalism is where somebody sets up standards that God never set up. Those standards then are, are used to judge other people who are not keeping the standards that they have set. So you say uh, the word legalism, and if you've ever heard the term legalist, how many of you have ever heard of somebody who's called a legalist? Okay, so here's a legalist, and I want you to write this down and never forget. A legalist is someone who has a legal list, a legal list. Uh, They have created a list of things that they say this is what it means to be spiritual, and they judge you based upon uh, how well you keep that list or not. So that's the idea. So the first thing that he talks about here, he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food. Well, that's the first thing. Well, one of the things that we find that's very different than the Old Testament that the Hebrews had to, the Jewish people had to uh, abide by, in the New Testament, that all ended as far as the, the foods that they had to eat or not eat. And so Paul would write in the New Testament, he would say, there in your outline, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care lest this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul says food doesn't really commend you to God. God doesn't really care what you eat. And uh, so today after the service you can have a donut. It's okay. (laughs) Now... um, that seems to be something that we laugh at, but you know that there are some groups that take this very serious. So if you were to go online today and you were to type in Adventist.org, which is the website for the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, and you were to say, what is your fundamental beliefs? They have a category there. You type in fundamental beliefs and it comes up. In Article 22 of their fundamental beliefs, they would say, we are to adopt the most faithful, uh, most healthful diet the most healthful diet possible, and to abstain from the unclean foods identified in the scriptures. So although professing to be Christians, they say that in order to be truly spiritual, you can't eat just anything. Uh, you have to eat what was prescribed in the Old Testament. So it's not really a problem for us, and uh, that's where you say thank you, Jesus, but it is something that some people do still struggle with. Now, one of the things that you could not eat in the Old Testament was lobster. And uh, so I'm appreciative to our Seventh-day Adventist friends because they do not eat lobster, which leaves more for us. So let's <laughs> put that out there. All right. So we're having fun so far. So if you decide to eat something to be healthy, that's fine. 
if you eat something because you think it makes you more spiritual and somebody else doesn't hold to that standard, that's not fine because food does not make you spiritual or unspiritual. So far so good? Okay. Well, let's see what's next on the list. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or, what's that word? Uh Uh-huh. You don't even want to say it loud, do you? Everybody say drink. There you go. Be bold. All right. So that's an interesting word. Um, the word drink there, posis in the original language, uh, means a drinking, means the act of drinking or a draft. Uh, any of you guys know what a draft is? Yeah, <laughs> lots of heads bobbing. Good. All right. So you have to understand they didn't have a lot of options in that day. There was no new Coke, old Coke, Diet Coke, Cherry Coke, Coke Zero. That's not what they're talking about. Uh, it was either uh, water, grape juice, or something alcoholic. And so if it was grape juice after 30 days because they had no refrigeration, it was wine. Okay, so that, that's just how it is. Now, that's, uh, if you grew up in a, in a background like I did, in our country, about 150 years ago, some well-intentioned believers began to look around the landscape, and they saw that some believers tended to abuse alcohol. So they said because some abuse, all should not use. And it was at that time they began to reread scripture in keeping with their belief system. So you have um, uh, the story of Jesus turning water into wine. First miracle that he does, he goes to a wedding. I've actually put part of it there in your outline. There was a wedding at Cana, uh, in Cana of Galilee, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And, when, and of course, he turns the water into wine, where most of us are familiar with that. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had, and by the way, I put the word in the wrong place. It needs to be over there attached to the word wine because it's wine. So uh, forgive me for that, which had become wine. And the word there for wine is oinos, oinos. Everybody see that? So um, what began to take place, and you'll hear this, is that people began to say, well, it wasn't really wine, it was grape juice. Jesus didn't turn water into wine, it was grape juice. And uh, one of my mentors, Chuck Missler, at this point, he says in order to, uh, he says if you, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. But in order to confess that this was grape juice, you're going to have to really torture the data, which is true. The, the idea is it's, is it's wine. And uh, so, so he turns water into wine. Well, some would say, well, because, because grape juice is an entirely different word. He would have used a different word. Uh, some would say, well, it is, uh, it's, it's grape juice. And uh, it's interesting that Paul would write later on there in your outline, he says, do not get drunk with wine. Does everybody see that? For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So whatever that was that Jesus turned the water into, apparently if you had enough of it, you could get drunk, which means that it's, it's alcoholic. Uh, and so, um, so then some would say, they say, all right, well, we'll give you that it was alcoholic, but it was so diluted. I mean, the, the way that they did things back then, it was so diluted that you'd have to drink a gallon and a half just, just to get slightly happy. So that, that's what they would say. Well, does this mean diluted, diluted wine? Well, interesting, in the book of Revelation, during that time period known as the tribulation, God says something. And uh, he says there in your outline, then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So the question is, is this going to be the diluted wrath of God that's going to be poured out? No. no. So the idea is it's going, if you read that verse uh, further, it says, no, it's, it's, it's the full strength. It's, it's the real deal. So it's not a diluted wine. It's, 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 the, it's the real thing. It's the real thing. And um, so I say all that to, to say that, that you have to really distort some things to, to make it say that it was grape juice or that it was diluted. It, it's, it's the real thing. So, um, and some of you are like, well, thank you, Jesus. And others are like, wow, I've never seen that. And, but nobody's running out the door yet, so that, that's good. Now, some people have a conviction that to have anything alcoholic is wrong for them. And that's fine. If you have a conviction that it's wrong for you, then that, that's fine. But a legalist is somebody, and you want to write this down, who seeks to bind you by their conscience. So if you have a conviction, that's one thing, but a legalist seeks to bind you by their conscience. And Paul says, don't let anyone re- uh, be your, act as your judge in that. So how does that work out? Well, from time to time, I will walk into a restaurant and uh, when I walk into a restaurant, I can always tell who goes to Calvary and what your church background is. And uh, the, the reason is, for some, I walk in, and it's you know three guys, I have this vision of mine, three guys are sitting at a bar, I come walking in, they hold up their beers, and they go, Pastor Dan! I go, oh, okay, you're, Calvary's your church home, you come from more of a Catholic, Episcopal kind of background, <laughs> Lutheran, you know, uh, uh, some Presbyterian, you know, kind of thing. And uh, that's great, but uh, you're not the most fun. The, the ones who are the most fun are the ones that when I walk in, you have that deer in the headlight look. You know, it's like the pastor is here. And I know you go to, to, to this church because of the look on your face, but also the fact that you then take that stand-up menu and you start to build a tent around <laughs> You know how you do that? And then when you think I'm not looking, you start to reach around and put it right back in the tent, you know, so you, you try to hide that. Now, uh, for, for those of you, and I, I know what background you come from, you come from more of a Baptist, a Methodist, Church of God, Nazarene type background, where those things would be more prohibited. Now, I want you to know that I do not care that you are in the restaurant and you're having a glass of wine. But when I see that look on your face, I do run up to your table and I go, aha, only... <laughs> Only because I want to see that look on your face. It's priceless. So, now, why, why do I share that? Um, when you go to a restaurant and you order a, a drink, uh, you're doing that because you think it's okay. And, and I, I think it's okay. So I'm not saying that it's not. Um, but the reason you're bothered when I, or your former pastor, walks in uh, is because not because you're bound by your conscience, but in that you're bound by their conscience. And so you don't think you're doing anything wrong before the Lord. You just don't want them to see you. Does that make sense? And so Paul says, don't be bound by somebody else's conscience. So we'll talk about that in, in a few moments. Now, if somebody is struggling and you realize that by you having that's going to cause them to be tempted to go on a three-day bender, then you need to give up your right and, and not and not participate in that at that time. So then he goes on to say, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Some were saying that you have to worship on the Sabbath. 
uh, if, if uh, again, our, our Seventh-day Adventist friends would say that, that we are wrong to worship on Sunday, that you need to worship on Saturday, which is the Sabbath. And uh, many times they will accuse us of not worshiping the sun, S-O-N, but they say because we worship on Sunday, S-U-N, we're actually participating in sun worship, S-U-N worship. And uh, the, the truth is, in, in the New Testament, it doesn't really matter what day you worship on, and we worship every day. And so, but, but Paul says, so don't let anybody judge you and put that on you in that way. So if you want to worship on Saturday, that's great, and if you don't want to, that's fine, but don't let anybody judge you in that way. Verse 17, he says, the things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And, and so when he says these are a shadow of, of things to come, the idea is that probably the best way to describe this is if I were to come home and uh, at the end of the day and I see that, that uh, Cheryl comes to greet me, she comes out to the front and there's the shadow on the ground and she bends down and she starts kissing the shadow, giving all of her attention to the shadow, I'd be like, what's up? Why are you doing that? I mean, you got all of this and this package here. Why would you... <laughs> And during the holidays, there's more to the package, I might add, too. <laughs> so, so we would all say that's a little bit strange that you're giving that the attention. And so the idea is that when believers focus in on those things, they're focusing in on the shadow, but they're not focusing in on the real thing, which is holding fast to Jesus. And that's in verse 19, and we'll talk about that. Well, so far so good. Verse 18, he says... Um, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, however your Bible says it, by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Well, there's, there's a lot in that. Um, first of all, I want to highlight, I like the American Standard Version because it, it, I think it says it more clearly. It says, let no one rob you of your prize. And I want you to underline rob you of your prize there on your outline. Now that, that's several words in English, but in the original language it's one word. And the word there is a very long word. I won't try to pronounce it. I put it on your outline. It means to decide as, uh, and I want you to underline umpire against, umpire against one to declare him unworthy of the prize, to defraud the, of the prize of victory. So what they do is they rob you of your prize, not your salvation, but your prize. And how they do that is that they say that you are disqualified as they umpire against you because you're not playing by the rules that they have set. Does that make sense? That's what it means to umpire against. And uh, so you, know, you see the guy sliding into home and the umpire goes, you're out. And uh, the thing is... You, they would say, you're not playing by the rules that we have established. So don't let anybody umpire against you with rules that they have set up. Uh, so go ahead and uh, write this down. Don't get robbed of your prize by self-appointed referees. Self-appointed referees. And here he lists three ways that that happens. Now, there's probably more, but, um, but there, there's you know, probably more. These are the ones that they were dealing with. Verse 18 says, no, let no one keep defrauding you, defrauding you of your prize by delighting in, first of all, self-abasement. Uh, there on your outline I put self-abasement, how it says it in my translation. If you have the King James, it would say voluntary hum- humility. Uh, if you have the NIV translation, it would say false humility. 
And, and the reason I, I highlight that is it's one of those words that's kind of hard to translate one way into English. The word there in your outline, again, it's a very big word. I won't try to, to, uh, to pronounce it, but it means the having of a humble opinion of oneself, a, dense, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty, humility, lowliness of mind. But this is a false sense of that. It's a, it's a false sense of that. So what does that mean? Well, um, false humility, write this down, is thinking, uh, false humility is thinking that holding to outward standards makes us spiritual. Outward standards make us spiritual. Does that fit on your outline that way? Okay. Uh, and that would be the list of things that I don't do. The list of things that I don't do. So I come from a, uh, I, you know, I've been around the block, the theological block, and, uh, but where I went to seminary in that tradition, women typically wore their hair in buns and they didn't wear, um, they, they wouldn't wear makeup. And they wore denim dresses down to the, to the ground. I felt the Lord tell me, get thee out of here. But <laughs> I'll be in sin, but I'm not going to be in ugly. So. Can we remove that? That's not part of my notes. <laughs> it's in there. So, so if you want to wear your hair in a bun and wear denim dresses down to the ground, that's fine. But if you think it makes you more spiritual, that's wrong. That's wrong. Um, others would hold, you know, a, a vow of poverty uh, makes you spiritual. Well, he would say, no, that, that would be a false humility because when you do that, and everybody knows that you've done that, then you've set a standard that you could judge other people. Like, I'm spiritual because I took this, this vow, and that's the idea. And what we find is in verse 19, what, keeps, what, what makes us spiritual is holding fast to Jesus. And that's what, the point that he's driving home. Then he has uh, the next one. In my translation, it says, the worship of angels. And uh, however your, your Bible says it, the worship of angels. Um, I wanted to highlight there that the word there uh, is a very different word for worship than what's found everywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, Threskia, or how, I'm probably mispronouncing that. But that word means a ceremonial observance. We might say where you're giving attention to. So it's, it's not um, worship in the traditional sense. It's where you're giving your attention to something. Now, the word that's commonly used in the New Testament, there on your outline uh, from Matthew 2, it says, they came to the house and saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. And that word worship is proskuneo. And having opened their treasures, they offered unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By the way, did you see how I snuck Christmas in there? Yeah, I could have used any verse, but I went for Christmas. I know you're thinking, brilliant. So, so the idea is, the word proskuneo is the word that's most often used in the New Testament for worship. It means to worship. This word that they're using here, where it says the worship of angels, is more of a giving attention to, to giving attention to that. So how does that work out? Well, if you were to take a, a commentary, most commentaries will have a little passage that will read something like this. And I'll, I'll read it, and then we'll explain it. Uh, the Colossians understood that the, these angels to be involved in creation and the government of the world. They worshiped them as their link to God. These angels could be regarded as malevolent and needing appeasement or as benevolent and bestowing blessing. Their so-called worship 
may only have involved propitiating them to ward off their evil effects or beseeching them for protection. So before the Colossians became Christians, common in that culture, they would believe in a God, but they believed that there were a number of angels. They believed that you couldn't just go straight to the God that they worshipped, but one of the ways that you get your prayer answered is you'd come over here and you would choose an angel, you would pray to that angel, and that angel could answer your prayer, and uh, that angel could take your prayer to to, uh, the God that you worshipped. Well, after people began to become believers, some began to come into the church. And they said, it's great that you go to Jesus, but um, one of the things that you can do is that you can go to an angel over here, and this angel might be over this or that, and then you pray to this angel, they can answer your prayer, or they could take your prayer to Jesus, and then Jesus could answer your prayer. And you have a much greater chance of Jesus answering your prayer if you can get this angel to, to take your prayer there. Well, the, the problem with that is that they were looking to angels to mediate between them and God. But angels can't go between you and God as, as a believer. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that there is one God and one mediator also between God, God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Well, the church never really embraced going to angels to get your prayer answered. But later on, the, prayer, the church did the same thing, but it wasn't angels. Later on, the church embraced the idea of going to saints to pray to them to get them to answer your prayer or to have them take your prayer to Jesus. Does that make sense? And so what they are doing when they do that, they are not holding fast to the head, they're holding fast to something else uh, that cannot mediate. So when I was in the army, part of what I did uh, required going through airborne school. And so we had been through basic training, AIT, you know, advanced infantry training and all that, and then uh, we went to airborne school. There was a group of us that traveled together. So when you go to airborne school, you, you have your ground week, you have your tower week, and then you have jump week. Jump week is where you make your five qualifying parachute jumps to become a paratrooper. So we get on the airplane. We've been through all the training. We're all sitting there. And uh, as, as, uh, you know, you're very gung-ho when, when, when you're a paratrooper. And then they, the airplane takes off, and there's this quietness that comes over, over the crowd. Because everybody's thinking, what the heck was I thinking? <laughs> Jump out of an airplane, the dumbest thing. So, but my, my friends, and this is not the, to take a shot, I'm just sharing an experience that, that had. But my friends all of a sudden began to reach inside of their shirt and they started pulling out this little piece of metal and they're looking at it and they're mumbling something and they start kissing it. And then they put it back in and then, then they make the sign of the cross. I'm like, well, what are you doing? And they said, we're praying to St. Michael. And uh, well, who's Michael? Well, it turns out Michael is the um, he's the patron saint of paratroopers. So why don't you why don't you pray to Jesus? And they go, well, Jesus might be busy, but but we can go to Michael. My, and, and I don't I don't say that you know to take a shot. That's that, that's what they told me. So Michael, you know, so the, but Michael can hear our prayer. He can answer our prayer, or he could take our prayer to Jesus. And if Michael takes it, we have a better chance of of it you know being answered. Well, the, the problem with that is that it's giving your attention to somebody else to mediate between you and God. And there's one mediator. And when you do that, you're not holding fast to the head. 
That's Jesus. And uh, so, so here at Calvary, we, we don't pray to saints or, or to Jesus' mom or to his friends. We go right to Jesus. That makes sense? So that says that they're not holding fast. So what they are saying there, when it says they are worshiping angels, write this down. They're trying to reach God through anyone or anything other than Jesus, you know, be it angels or saints or whoever. Now, another way that they were being robbed of their prize in verse 18, let no one keep deprauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, or taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Uh, One of the ways that they were doing this, and I I put there in your outline, taking their stand on visions they have seen and not what God has revealed. What you have here is what God has revealed, and and it lays out everything that we're going to need to know. You and I, um, what they were doing is God had revealed certain things but they were saying, yes, but here's what the Lord has shown me. And uh, you and I live in a time where the Bible is very clear about how certain things are going to go. But right now we live in a time period where many professing believers are standing up and saying, yes, but here's what the Lord has revealed to me. And it's very different than what the Lord has revealed here. And so the problem with that is that people listen to them and uh, they stop holding fast to the head, to Jesus, and they start to hold fast to something else. You always make sure that you go back to this to find out what's, what's going to take place. That makes sense? So they were taking their stand on those things. And the result, the result there in verse 18, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen. And here, here, here's the problem, inflated without cause, by his fleshly mind, by his fleshly mind. By the way, there on your outline, uh, I put from the King James when it says, my translation, it would say, taking his stands on vision he has seen. But I love how the King James says it, says it, it says, intruding into those things which he has not seen. And the idea is, is that God has revealed this. They're saying, but here's what the Lord's revealed to me. And uh, Paul says, you haven't seen anything because you're making that up. And you're inflated in your fleshly mind. It's not spiritual. And there's pride. The pride is you're going against what God has said and you're saying, but here's what the Lord has revealed to me. And that's the idea. So I, I know that's pretty fast. So, so they held to false humi- humility, which is focusing in on the externals. They looked to other mediators other than Jesus. Now, this is coming into the church. The church is not embracing this. Paul's heading it off at the pass. Uh, some were taking their stands on visions that they had seen and, the, and rejecting what God had revealed. So the solution to their error, and you want to write this down, is to hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Verse 19, he says, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being, being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. The idea is that if you look at these other things, that's not really from him. The way to be spiritual is to hold fast to Jesus. To hold fast to Jesus. And I love the word there, hold fast. It means to use strength to seize or retain, to hold, to keep, uh, to obtain, retain, take by. And the idea is, is that the way that you that the way that you become spiritual is not by a list of things that you do or don't do. It's by hanging on to Jesus. 
Does that make sense? And that's the point of that. Well, very quickly, verse 20 says, so if you've died with with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, why do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? And that's that's very common in our church world. The church that I I was at before, uh, Calvary, in order to join that church, we had to sign a, uh, a document saying that we would not handle, touch, or taste certain things to be part of, of that church. Uh, they made it harder to join their church than Jesus makes it to join his church. So you want to be careful of that. Verse 21, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and, and, and uh, severe and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. When it says severe treatment of the body, if you've ever studied church history in the Middle Ages, it was very common for people who wanted to be spiritual, they would do things like they would whip themselves on the back until they bled, they would wear hair shirts which would always scratch them and itch them, uh, and they would sleep on the floor because it was uncomfortable, and they felt that those things made them spiritual. And Paul would say, that's nothing to do with uh, you being spiritual. That's just man-made religion, and it's, it, it has not, no bearing at all to, to do anything. So we are completely out of time, so let me just read three verses. Our position here at Calvary is always this. There in your outline, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn, underline this, to not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So we never go beyond what the Bible says. That's our standard is what the Bible says. When you go beyond what the Bible says, it gives you a way of judging people because they're not keeping your standard. Have nothing to do with that. Well, but then uh, the next verse is, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So you never want to do anything that causes a weaker brother to stumble. So if you have the freedom to have a a drink uh, and you have that freedom, that's fine. But if somebody comes in and you know that they really struggle with alcohol, then you need to not do that in their presence. Now, that's somebody who struggles with it, that they'd be tempted to go on a three-day bender. That's not somebody who comes in who is more legalistic. You, you have no, there's, there, there's nothing that says that you have to accommodate their, their legalism. So we never want to cause somebody to stumble. And then finally, in our freedom, Peter would say this, act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So you want to make sure that your freedom is not a covering for evil. What that means is you can't get smashed and then say, I have freedom in Christ. That does not work. <laughs> Everybody got that? So none of that. All right. We are out of time, and uh, so I have to kind of abruptly shut this. So we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as uh, we continue and we go forward, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who, as you say, we hold fast to the head. And whatever it is that you want us to do or not do, we cling to you. 
we, we never go beyond what you have revealed so that we can judge other people who don't keep our list. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to always represent you in everything that we do. I pray that you keep us safe until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.